You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. Uh, My name is Ian Wheeler. Uh, I am the worship director here at Gospel Community Church, uh, and it is my honor and privilege to be uh, bringing the word this morning. Uh, I enjoy every Sunday getting to lead worship with you guys, and it's been fun to watch Uh, over this past year, just how we've developed as a congregation and singing joyfully and loudly to our Lord. Um, It's really been a joy. Um, It's something that uh, I look forward to every week, like I said. Um, But again, good morning. Uh, If you're new here, uh, we're excited to have you. Uh, If you've been coming for a long time, uh, we're pumped you're here. (laughs) Um, And I hope that whether you're new, whether you're Christian, whether you're a member, or you're just here checking out things, uh, that we leave today with a better understanding uh, of who our God is, Uh, and what he's done for us through Christ. So we're going to open with prayer here before we dive in uh, to the text. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning uh, for a space to gather uh, here in this city, Lord, for uh, your presence to be with us uh, as believers, Lord, that we're gathered here uh, to worship you this morning. Uh, We also pray for the men at man camp. Uh, Lord, what an encouragement just to hear the number of men uh, just taking time out of their lives Uh, to get to know you better, uh, as well as the community around them. Uh, Lord, we pray for safe travel and that your spirit would work in them. Lord, we also pray for this time this morning that as we turn to your word, that you would give clarity. Uh, Lord, that you would be glorified and that ultimately uh, we would see Jesus as the hero of this story. Lord, I pray if I say anything that's confusing or not true, uh, Lord, that it would just pass through people's ears, but the spirit would cling the truths of your word to our hearts. Uh, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're continuing Exodus. We're going to be in chapters 32 through 34. Um, And kind of the main point or the main 
thing that we're going to focus on this morning is true worship. That's the title of the sermon and what I hope we walk away from the sermon, understanding how to truly worship our amazing God. But before we dive into chapter 32, uh, I think it's important to just pause for a moment and kind of look broadly at where we're at in Exodus. Sometimes if you read through this book, it can be a little confusing because it starts out in somewhat of chronological order. Things are happening, lots going on, and then you hit the text that we've been in the past couple weeks where there's a pause and there's a bunch of instructions. And it seems like, you know, back a couple chapters ago, there was something that happened after Sinai. So there's just some things that are a little confusing. So we're just going to back up before we go forward here. So let's back up to Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 12. So this sets the scene here. So Moses, or the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for your instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us to return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So back in chapter 24, we see this. Moses goes up on the mountain and then we've just walked through the instruction that Yahweh, the God who's chosen to dwell with Israel, has given his people. We've talked about the tabernacle, the importance of all the things that go into the process that, hu- that humans, sinful humans, can enter into God's presence. So what we're going to see today is Moses is going to come down, and we're going to be in 32. But this is actually happening while Moses is up on the mountain. So the last verse of 31 reads this, and he being God, gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written on with the finger of God. So again, as we dive into today's text, things weren't super linear, but while Moses is up on the mountain, this is what's happening in camp. Verse 1 of 32. When the people saw Moses was delayed from coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, of your wives and of your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And when he received the gold from their hand, he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And he made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose early and the next day offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what is going on here? How do we go from a nation that has witnessed so much of what Yahweh has done from them? The 10 acts of justice he brings on Egypt to begin the process of bringing them out of exile into the promised land that he's promised them. They've crossed the Red Sea. Now they're at the foot of Sinai where God's presence is literally dwelling on top of the mountain. And we find ourselves in this situation. They're already breaking the covenant that they just made a few chapters back. So let's look back at verse one and see if we can understand what's going on here. 
When Moses, or when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. And Aaron said to them, Up, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I would say, after thinking through this, that there's fear that's brewing in the camp. Moses is delayed from coming down from the mountain. The people are getting weary. And if we remember the role that Moses played, he was both mediator between God and the people of Israel, but he also ruled. A few chapters back, we read that anytime there was a quarrel or some kind of issue, people came to Moses and he was the one that was helping settle and rule. And he was also a picture of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. They could look to him and know that God is still with them. So it's out of fear that they decide to build a God. And I think it's important here that we dive into the word God here because it's plural in this text, but there's only one calf, and I think it's helpful to understand. So the word here in Hebrew is Elohim, which refers to any deity or graven image or lowercase God in the Old Testament. So think about the line that uh, in Deuteronomy 10 that uh, Yahweh, our God, is God of gods. He is the Elohim of Elohim. So it can also be translated a God here, um, not necessarily the plurals. They didn't make multiple calves. It was just one. But back to the heart of this. Fear is a very powerful emotion. And it's interesting in our own lives, we can draw direct lines from our greatest fears to the gods that we choose to worship. Oftentimes we'll look at those gods as opposed to the fear that's created them. So let's talk about a couple here. The fear of discomfort will protect our hearts or our lives from anything that could bring us discomfort. And we'll worship ourselves or our emotions with the comfort being our God. The things that decide our decisions, the things that we do in our lives are based out of fear of being discomforted. Or the fear of failure will work our lives away chasing success or hitting milestone after milestone that society has set out in front of us, only to be left to burn out and empty and worship the approvals of others, focused on winning the comparison game that we so like to live our lives based off of. Again, failure being our God. But what does God say about fear in his people? Isaiah chapter 40, 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And what did Jesus say? In John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you are indeed a follower of Christ, we don't have fear, we have peace. And we have it only because Christ has overcome the world. So my first point is rest, take heart, and that Christ has overcome the world. There's not a fear possible in our hearts or in our lives that Jesus can't comfort or crush. And we should have peace because of that truth. But let's continue to verse two here of chapter 32. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So that, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I find this one of the most iconic or ironic sections of scripture. This nation of Israel that has just been brought out of Egypt was so graciously given the plunder of the Israelite or the, uh, the Egypt, uh, those from Egypt. They're given these earrings, they're given their necklaces, yet they're taking them off to create an image of their God. 
Remember, they were given this out of Egypt. So verse five, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose early in the next day, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And up until preparing for this sermon, I understood this golden calf scenario as a perfect picture where Israel turns away from Yahweh to worship a God of their own creation. And now I do believe that we find this time and time again in the Old Testament. Israel does it even when the temple is completely built. They fill it with their own gods. But I believe that this section here has a very specific warning to those who worship Yahweh. Ultimately, that he has terms and agreements for worship. So notice here in verse 5 and 6, the direction of their worship. It says, uh, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And notice that that says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And that the next day they rose and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Remember when we see that, the L-O-R-D capitalized in the Old Testament, it's referring to Yahweh, the God who has brought the Israelites out of Egypt and has brought salvation to them. Yet they've created a physical representation of Yahweh, reducing his powerful, his all-powerful, all-knowing God to the image of a cow. And this brings me to the second point in our sermon here. Doxology without theology equals idolatry. I'll say it again. Doxology without theology equals idolatry. Another way to say that is worship can only be done rightly if we understand the God that we worship. We'll make up gods of our own feelings or our desires and worship it. And ultimately to worship is to ascribe worthiness or worth to something. So again, doxology, so our worship without theology, a correct understanding of who God is equals idolatry, creating and worshiping a God of our own design. I grew up in the South in a church culture that was heavily emotionally driven. There was a high priority placed on the importance of God showing up to move Sunday after Sunday. And this created an environment to make that possible. Worship was aimed at creating a space for this to happen. And it was often stated that it was also contingent on my own personal belief or my own personal desire that God would in fact come and move. The music and sermons were filled with very high energy moments to create these emotional experiences. And the scripture was pulled often from across the Bible without context, verse after verse after verse. And I say this because I've lived the truth. I saw my sin. I saw my self-righteousness, my selfishness, my desire to be driven by success and to succeed, concerned about propping up my good image before people, now knowing that it was filthy rags before our holy God. But with the Holy Spirit in me, I longed to change. So I did what I thought God wanted to do. I sang loud on Sundays. I took diligent notes weekend, week out, and I did my best to follow the list of to-dos from the week prior. But unfortunately, it didn't work. And I don't say this to boast, just to show that the doxology was there. I was worshiping, yet I was left with little understanding of the Bible. I was tired, I was empty, and I was losing hope. I can remember year after year, every Easter service, thinking, now I'll change. This is the year. This is when I'll follow God. 
only sparked by the guilt that I felt after an emotional service. And I know I'm not alone in this. I've had many discussion with friends in the same culture, and I know it might be the same story for some of you. And it wasn't until I moved to Oregon and started attending a college group that I'd even heard the word theology, again, meaning the study of our God. For the next four years, my mind was completely blown and my heart was captured by who our God was. Ultimately, what he's done through Jesus Christ. And I began to develop an entire new understanding, the God of the Bible. This change came by community groups, through reading scripture, and from hearing sermons preached verse by verse through scripture. And I began to realize that the Jesus that I had created in my mind was a mere candle flame to who he truly is, the radiant, powerful sun at the center of our universe who gives life to every living thing. And as my understanding of God grew, my faith grew. And the same is true for every one of us in this room. The promises of God became present in my life and they can be for us as well. We can trade out the exhaustion for rest in the finished work of what Christ has completed on the cross in his perfect life. We can trade out the emptiness for the fullness of life found through the gospel. And we can trade out the loss of hope for the hope found in assurance of our salvation. I used to fear as a kid, if I didn't pray right before I died to get that last repentance in, I wouldn't make it to heaven. But does that sound like what we read in Romans 8, 38 and 39? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I'm by no means saying that I have things figured out. And it's safe to say that no one on earth has a completely correct theology. No one can fully understand God to his smallest details or why he does the things that he does. But what I can say with full conviction is that our theology, our understanding of who God is and our worship can only come from scripture where he has so graciously revealed himself to us. We can look back time and time again to what God's done through the Old Testament where he's faithful time and time again, where Israel always falls short, ridiculously short. And then Christ shows up and he lives his perfect life time and time again, every day for others, which I can barely go an hour lived the life that we can't, died the death that we deserve and rose from the dead. And because of that, all of those things we just mentioned, improper worship, selfishness, pride, all fall at the feet of God. And we're giving the perfection of Christ. See, idol worship doesn't satisfy. There's a line that my college pastor used once that summed up the struggle that I had as well as began a long month process of just thinking through the depths of what it means. He said, immorality will never satisfy. Morality will never save, but Jesus does both. See, I hung my hat on my morality that I would try my best to live up to what God had put in front of me. Yet I failed time and time again. I would see those around me living in immorality, doing the things that they desired, hoping and thinking maybe that brings satisfaction. But time and time again, I saw that didn't work. So this one line, the immorality will never satisfy and morality never saves, that Jesus does both, began to stir in my heart. My morality can't save me. And that's not the good news of the gospel, that I have more work to do. Christ has done the work. Now we can rest. And that's good news. 
but it doesn't mean that we get to kick back, relax, and just flow through life knowing that God's grace has us covered. I would say that it urges us into a stronger and deeper knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done, ultimately found through his word. And through that, we can understand and worship more truly. And now I would argue that this book we're in now, Exodus, one of its main points is the revealing of the character of God, ultimately who he is. And one of my favorite commentaries says this about the verses that we've read. Although the people offered appropriate sacrifices, their worship of the calf degraded the one who delivered them from the slavery in Egypt. Worship, to be true, must be based on right perception of God. The book of Exodus emphasizes the importance of knowing God as he truly is and not as we imagine him to be. See, Israel's forgetting who their God is. He's revealed himself time and time again to this people. Yet the God of the universe has now been shrunken down to a simple golden calf, not even a cow, (laughs) believing that that, in fact, is Yahweh. And here's my first challenge to you. Do you know who God described himself to be? Do we understand who he is? I would say it is when and only when that we experience the true glory and the true splendor and the character of our God, ultimately displayed on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, that we'll turn from our sin and worship rightly. And that's the goal of all of this. Our theology, so our understanding of God, should lead to doxology. Our understanding of God should push us into worship. And the great news is that the more that we understand God, the easier it is to worship him. As new covenant believers, meaning those who are under the new covenant, we no longer have the temple and the tabernacle that we've talked about, but we are all hidden in Christ. There's a lot to say about that. But as new believers, I would say our truest form of worship is repentance. And when I say repentance, I'm not talking about confession. I'm not talking about just bringing sin up to those around us or praying forgiveness. I'm talking about actually turning from the things that we see is good, that God has called bad, back to what God says is good. The act of turning from sin to God. That's what repentance is. And we should do it in every area of our life. And as I said, worship becomes easier when we understand more truly who God is. It's actively saying, I don't know what's best for me. Culture doesn't know what's best for me. My emotions don't know what's best for me. It is you, God, alone who knows what's best. And although my heart and my desires are contrary to that, I bow my will to yours. And that is the call of every Christian every day. And see, the beauty is Christ did this. He did it every day, every week, every second of his life to create the perfection that we get to enjoy. So as I said, I challenge you to understand who our God describes himself to be. And fortunately, down in chapter 34, we have an amazing piece of scripture where God chooses to reveal some of the most amazing attributes of who he is. So let's turn there now and walk through this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, our God is merciful, but what does it mean that he is merciful? Simply put, it means that he gives people, 
what they don't deserve. See, we've all failed to live up to God's standard. And you may ask, what is that standard? It's perfection. It's perfect obedience to his law. And I don't know about you, but perfection is not a word that I would use to describe myself. And because we've broken his law, he's completely just in killing every single one of us. And that may shock you. It did for me a long time because I didn't understand who our God was. But scripture tells us that we were enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if, we will wa- if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Praise the Lord that he is merciful. Do you reflect on God's mercy towards you? Our God's also gracious. And what does it mean that he's gracious? It means that he gives people things they do not deserve. See, God gives us perfection through Christ. As we talked about, Christ's life was perfect, stockpiling perfection so that he could pass that to us through his death and resurrection. It's something no human's ever done or any other one's even come close to. Yet he was charged as an innocent man and put to death on a cross. And Paul tells us that God made him being Jesus, who knew no sin, perfection, to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And that is the biggest act of grace ever recorded in all time. Christ took my sin, that self-righteousness that I mentioned earlier, the pride, my improper worship, and he paid for it with his life so that I can have his perfection. And all of his promises are yes and amen, as we sang earlier. See, God gave me what I did not deserve. Do you reflect on God's grace in your life? Exodus 33, 19, and he said, I will make all goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And this is Yahweh speaking. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Both God's mercy and his grace are gifts and I challenge us to cherish them. Our God's slow to anger. What does it mean that he's slow to anger? Well, I was uh, on a work trip earlier this week, was flying back from Montreal, Uh, Made it through security pretty quickly um, and then hit the customs line. Uh, And I was in that customs line for about an hour and 15 minutes. And as we got snaked around to the first row and started making our way to where the agents were, we noticed this other line, myself and those around me, where people are just passing. And that's why it took so long. Well, I had enough time, so I was a little less worried. But the people around me that had tight connections, it was amazing how quickly and how angry they got when they saw this wrongdoing. And see, if we take that picture and then we contrast that with who our God is, it is amazing that he is slow to anger. We think back to the weeks that we've had, the times that we've failed to love others or love God, just simply, God's slow to anger. He offers mercy and grace that we just talked about. So praise the Lord that he's slow to anger. And do you thank him that he's slow to anger? Our God overflows with steadfast love. What does that mean? It means that on my best day, The God of the universe loves me. And even more importantly, on my worst day, when I stumble and fall back into grotesque, nasty sin before his eyes, he still loves me. And praise the Lord that through Jesus, we don't have to earn our love, that nothing's contingent on our salvation. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg says, we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We thank God for his unchanging love for us. Our God overflows with faithfulness, as we sang earlier. God always keeps his word and his actions never waver from his character. Do we thank him for his faithfulness? Our God forgives iniquity. 
And what is iniquity? It's our distortion of the things that God calls good. And I think our best picture of that is the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. We see God say, do not eat of this tree. Yet Adam and Eve take what God has said, do not do. And they call it good. We do it time and time and again. Our culture does it. We do it. We make idols to worship. But our God forgives iniquity. Do you thank him that he forgives iniquity? Our God forgives transgressions. And what are transgressions? It's when we know the truth, but we willingly disobey it. Ultimately, a breaking of the contract. It's when we repay evil for evil. It's when we worship ourselves over God. It's when we watch pornography or gossip at work or even overeat with the stress of life, thinking that brings comfort. Our God forgives those too through Christ. Do you thank him that he forgives our transgressions? Our God forgives sin. The only God who is righteous enough to forgive, punish, and atone for sin, yet he chooses to forgive it. Do we thank him for his forgiveness of sin? Lastly, our God brings justice. Let's go back up to chapter 32. So we read Moses is on the mountain. The people are doing this. Let's see what happens. Then Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Then Moses stood at the gate, the camp, and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each one of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men fell. Our God brings justice. He didn't let that sin go unpunished, nor anyone in all of time. And this passage may make you uncomfortable, but it's a small picture of the events that are yet to come. See, we've all are guilty. We've all misplaced our worship. But just as Moses gave this opportunity for salvation, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. We too have the same offer. See, Jesus says, come to me. All who are weary, find rest. It's a call that he makes many times through the gospel. And as I said, this is a picture of events yet to unfold. The invitation stands. Christ says, come to me. But when Christ returns, when the skies open and all his people are gathered to his side, those who are not next to him will pay. And this offers such an interesting complex of emotions in my own heart. While I'm thankful to be hidden in Christ's perfection, and I know that evil will be punished, my heart breaks for those who will not be found in him. But I also know that every evil that happens in this world, horrible, sickening evil, will be met with justice. If someone walks into an elementary school and decides to shoot kids and then take their own lives hoping to escape justice, I know that justice will be served by our God. There is no God. Where do the grieving families find hope? Where do we find comfort? I say it's only through God's justice. And as I said earlier, it's a complex emotion, because at the same time, my heart breaks for those very same people that are so entangled by their sin that they define that as good. Do we thank God for his justice? As I close today, I'd like to call our attention to the way that Moses responds to that massive revelation of who God is, and I urge us to do the exact same. Exodus 34, verse 8 and 9, and Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in our midst. For that is a stick-necked people. 
and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. After this huge revelation, Moses immediately responds in worship, in correct worship of God, seeing his sin and asking for forgiveness. You could say that's the first step of repentance like we talked about earlier. We see it and then we turn from it. Our response should be the same. After thinking about the character of God, we should grow and desire to worship him only because of who he is and who he has chosen to be. I have two final challenges. First, to meditate on those questions we ask after each attribute. Do we reflect on God's mercy and grace? Do we reflect that he's slow to anger? Do we thank him for his faithfulness and his steadfast love? Do we thank him that he forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression? Do we thank him for his justice? And as we do this day in, day, and I, day in and day out, it's what I like to call daily worship, something we should do as Christians every day to reflect on what God's done for us. So in times where I'm angry or I feel that I've been wronged, I can look at the character of God and see how many times I've done the exact thing to God that I'm upset at and how quickly that causes me to worship our God. My second challenge to end here is to memorize verses six and seven that reveals who our God is, that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. And I pray that as we understand and that word is on our hearts, we can more, worship, more truly worship our God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Ultimately, that you have revealed yourself and who you are through your word, Lord, that we can look back to and remind our hearts and our minds and our emotions of the God that we serve. And that it is through a correct understanding of who you are that we can more truly worship you. Lord, and it's not an act or something that we just do out of fun, Lord, but it actually changes our heart. Lord, we're gripped by all that you've done through your son and what that means for our lives. So we worship you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.